The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Hey, if you guys want to make your way to your seats, we're going to go ahead and get started. Thank you all for coming this morning. Really appreciate everybody being here. Um, we're going to go ahead and get started. I'm going to pray, but before I do, um, just a couple quick announcements. Um, kind of the flow of the night, or the morning, I should say. Um, still feels like the night to me. Um, the flow of the morning. We have um, restrooms over here for men and restrooms over here for women. Um, the restroom over here is only one at a time, so just heads up and just keep your eye out on that. So that's always fun. Um, and then uh, the kind of flow for the morning, we're going to have um, Nate's going to come up here in a second and speak for roughly half an hour or so and then open it up just for Q&A, ask questions, um, and then we'll take a break. And, uh, and then Andy's going to come up and speak for another half an hour, and he'll do Q&A um, with you all, and then we'll um, close it out. So um, the goal of this time is to kind of think together as leaders in churches. You guys are pastors and leaders in churches, and thankful that you'd come. The goal for this time is for us to think hard about what does it mean to be um, disciple-makers, called to disciple-making, this ministry of disciple-making, um, in light of the things we've been talking about. So what does it mean to help people bear the image of Jesus um, as a part of this storied world. So, so, so to see him and to reflect his image in our lives, but also as disciple makers to help other people learn what it means to do that. Um, and so uh, I've been really thankful really for both of um, these different men and their ministries largely through writing. And um, as I introduce even introducing Nate, uh, for me, I don't know how long ago it was that I first read Notes from the tilt to whirl um, but somebody had introduced me to this book and I started reading it and it was very bizarre at the beginning, and, I, and we were talking about this the other day, I feel like if you've read Notes from the Tilted World, it's one of those books that you don't know what's happening until every chapter's ended, and then you realize something just happened to me, and, um, and you're kind of sorting through that, um, but for me, it was really, I grew up um, knowing that God's glory is manifested in creation, but never seeing it, um, never noticing it, never um, living with wide-eyed wonder, and uh, notes from the tilt world is what began to open up my eyes to the wonder of God and all of creation, that God is telling the story, God is speaking, and he's creating, and, and all around us we have these things that tell us something about what God's like. So being, being able to see something about what God's like, from everything from ants to earwigs, from snowflakes to icicles and bunnies and hawks, from seeing graveyards as places where humans have been planted, awaiting the resurrection, everything began to change by the way I looked at the world and thought not only about the world around me, but now my own role in the world as an image bearer, that my life says something about what God is like. And that as a pastor, um, learning what does it mean to help people and be conformed to the image of God, that their lives also would tell the world what God is like. And, um, and Nate's books, um, not only the, the fantasy and the fiction, um, I should say fantasy, less of fiction, but um, the fantasy and also the, the nonfiction through Notes from the Tilt's World and Death by Living, just understanding that we most beautifully really show the world what God's like when we're willing to lay down our lives um, for the good of others and for his glory, when we're willing to go into trouble, into difficulty, into death, and that God would magnify his own life um, through our daily dying. And so I'm really thankful for Nate, his ministry. Um, so he's going to come up and talk about what, what that should look like in the local church. Come on up. Then we're good here? Okay. Great. All right, well, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about Christian consumption. And one of the things that in my limited experience is a massive vulnerability, like a generational vulnerability in the Christian church. So for leaders who are discipling and training and educating 
upcoming generations and training leaders of upcoming generations, one of the things that's been patently obvious to me is that what we can't figure out is the arts. You know, just almost, almost at all. I, mean, I think we're getting all, like a zero to 10% score on equipping the next generation, equipping young people, equipping young leaders and creators to actually create, but more than that, to consume and resist. So one of the things that Andy and I were talking about briefly last night, at least we mentioned it came up, was the fact that Christians have no immune system. Like there's very little immune system for film especially. But novels, film, media in general. And then when you come to leaders, when you come to people who are teaching, you frequently run into their postmodern self-calibration, really, as, as they, they are the response mechanism for, for judging whether something's good or bad. It's amazing how much you'll find Christian leaders saying, well, who, who can say? Who, who, could really, who could really say? I mean, this is, this is a subjective thing. So, I mean, and, and there's a sliding scale. There's a, there's a point at which people will be like, I can say now. I, yes, I can say here. But there's this whole sliding scale backwards where they have no idea, no comprehension. And worse than that, they don't seem to care that they have no comprehension. They seem to just receive that as just the way the world is. They could never have a mechanism or an apparatus for aesthetic judgment. They don't, and they can't, and they won't. And so the next generation comes up. They develop their own unique tastes and quirks, their own mechanisms for how it must be to be cool, to be hip, to be cutting edge, to be game-changing. And the old people are stuck there. And by old people, it means anybody who's like 28 <laughs> and up. It's already too late. You're doomed. You know, you just as, as the wheel turns. And that 28-year-old starts trying to say, well, but I, I'm not sure that's maybe, I don't know. Huh. And the 18-year-old is saying, whatever. Who's to say? Like, who, who, who can say? And the answer is, well, we can say. We can. Think about this for a second. We're, we were put in charge of this place, as, as terrifying as it is. That tells you a lot about God right there. Here. You know, as Andy was talking about the Amazon rainforest, this one of the, some of the coolest stuff I've ever read was some of the early articles about, I think this was human. Like, people believing this was human. Who can, like, is it, as far as that kind of stuff goes, as far as we look at the arts, we're, we're put in charge of the forests, we're put in charge of the canyons, we're put in charge of the animals, and then suddenly when it comes to the creation of our fellow man, we just stop. Like, we just smack into it. And it's, it, it is always, I could say, depressing or infuriating or frustrating, any number of words. Most often it's just befuddling for me. So, this is not to say that I'm always right, obviously. <laughs> But it is to say that when we get into a, a, the area of aesthetic judgment, it is our job to try to be right. Like, we are supposed to name. We are supposed to identify. We are supposed to take the authoritative image of God into this situation, especially because this is the subcreation of man. If we don't have authority there, we have authority nowhere. If we have authority over the, the actual creation of God, but we don't have authority over the subcreation of man, it's, 
well, obviously we do, but aesthetic, aesthetics, so slippery. And thus, pastors have nothing to say about Batman. Or worse, they have all the wrong things to say about Batman. They're high-fiving the 14-year-olds about Batman. You know, trying to be hip, trying to be groovy, trying to be down with the kids. Instead of bringing any kind of maturity or sophistication to the engagement with this film. How many times have you, have you seen that? Have you seen the older, the leadership discipler guy trying to be cool with the discipled about name your TV show? Film, novels, TV shows, music, they are all catechisms. We bear the image of God. We are image bearers. And the creators of those shows, movies, albums, are naming. They're looking at the world, and they're naming. They're, they're presenting the sub-creation where they say, this is, this is reality. And they, they hand it over. And it never stops. It never stops. I've been in enough, enough committee meetings, creative committee meetings, to see which things get in automatically because they're part of the catechism, they're part of the worldview, and which things must not. Which things are out, which things are in, just immediately. And some of them are just, are we, are we, is this actually, in fact, going to be brought, like, this is recorded? You told me this is recorded. Because okay. <laughs> if it's, if it's going to be public or Googleable, I have to watch what I say, but it's um, some of these horror stories I'm going to tell, but... Uh, one of them, say, I had a family adventure story called Little Big War. This, uh, think the Sandlot versus Animal House. And, the, and the, the, whole, the, whole, the whole concept was there are these boys over the summer in that like, eternal summertime of childhood, fifth grade, and they have an empty field, and they create a, their own country. My kids did this, so I'm just stealing. Name it the Land of Apollo. This is their country. They start making laws and liturgies and routines and this whole thing for this, this field. And then, of course, the, the make-believe part is the field is behind Greek Grove, the local university. And fall comes and the frat guys show back up. And there's this enormous turf war between the fifth graders and the land of Apollo and, you know, the Sigma Chi up there. And the fifth grader, one of them has a brother who's rushing Sigma Chi, and they have this whole thing. So I have this, this whole story, and we have this pitch. It goes really well. It's basically the, what people would say, kind of like bot in the room. You know, it's like in the pitch. It's like, here we go. And the, the producer says, this is amazing. Do you know what's hilarious? Really funny? Nudity. Nudity is hilarious. Let's just shoot this at like a real high R level and we'll just edit it back down until we get PG-13, until we can squeak it in just at PG-13. Aaron was in the room and we were both just kind of sitting there. Um, I don't even know. So we left. We didn't sell it. We've never done anything with it. Because it's just... I mean, we, we've learned that we have to do stuff ourselves. As soon as you step into the machine, the catechism goes the other direction. That, that's kind of a bleeding obvious option. 
Kids movie family, lots of nudity, not necessarily the way to go. That's kind of, kind of simple. But with lots of other stories, people get sucked in. Some of you might like Breaking Bad. It's awful. Like, it's horrendous. Now, it's horrendous on one level and brilliant on another, which is why it matters so much. If it was made like a CW show, it wouldn't really be much of a threat at all. Because it's created by very intelligent, very sophisticated people who understand their craft and know what they're doing, it's compelling, it can grab you, it can sweep you up, and here you are just in there with the meth dealer. Just, let's go, man. I hope this works. I hope this next big sale really really goes well, and there's this vicarious participation in evil. It's very gratifying. It's very interesting. Like, you get, the, you get the fear, you get the worry, you get the so on, like other stuff. Now, same time, is there any positive stuff? Yeah, sure. All, all sorts of, you could pull all sorts of things out of it that are valuable. Then the question is, is it worth it? Like, you have all sorts of, like, wisdom issues. Is it worth it for that 14-year-old? Is it healthy for this housewife? who's throwing Breaking Bad parties with blue rock candy. <laughs> Real example. So a bunch, of, I, I know of one, I know these people, actually. I like them. If, where they had, a, like, everybody came, like, grown-ups, leaders in the church, came dressed as drug dealers and so on, and had a Breaking Bad party to watch a season premiere with fake meth. What the hell? <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, What's going on? Now, is that, is that consistent with the show, or is it inconsistent with the show? And it takes, it takes leaders to discern. Now, there's a big difference between a leader watching something and processing something and digesting something and a, a consumer just consuming it. And the key of all of this stuff is, I will, I will, I will tell you, I think, that's, I think this is a terrible show. I think it's a well-crafted, ingeniously written Compellingly shot, brilliantly edited, terrible show. And so on the, I would say there's, there's different tiers of engagement. On the technical level, I think it would be hard to find a better one. Like if you're talking about technical skill of execution. And, I, I, and this is where I have a general apparatus for how I engage. Now as somebody who's trying to imitate filmmaking styles or trying to learn, I will watch lots of stuff and diagram lots of stuff that I wouldn't then recommend to a teenage kid or to a college student. But I would tell somebody else you need, who wants to be involved in crafting, you need to see this part specifically, or I'd tell a leader whose all of his congregation is watching it, but he won't, because a pastor must be above reproach, like that he's being a moron. Go watch it. Show up at the Breaking Bad party. Be there. Watch it. Engage. Have a conversation. Like, in, engage with it. And don't be scared to name. Even when you're wrong. Like, name, grapple, discover, refine. You're not, it's the, the Chesterton quote, one of the famous ones, anything worth doing is worth doing badly. You cannot expect to just step out of the gates and say, I am now ready to lead people and disciple people in cultural and aesthetic engagement, and I'm perfect. I'm going to be really good at this. No, you're going to be awful. You're going to be pretty bad for a while. It doesn't, it doesn't just come 
instantly. You actually have to do research. You have to engage thoroughly. You have to unpack worldviews. You have to understand a lot more about film technique than you might want to if you want to be able to rebut this stuff. So, three, three levels of engagement. When I'm interacting with students, which I do every year about this stuff, I'm about to start a grad level class on film engagement, but I also work with undergraduates uh, occasionally. I talk about three major categories for criticism. There's technical, just technical skill, craft. This is one of the, f the first and easiest ones that, that you see people claim when they want to like something that maybe they shouldn't like. And if they're, if they're not very sophisticated, then they'll, they'll claim something really stupid like cinematography was amazing. They don't know what cinematography is. It just means that they kind of looked nice the whole time they experienced it. Or the score, you know, moved me. Okay. Those, th those things actually belong in the technical discussion. But we tend to bite a lot more quickly on things that are basic achievements as opposed to great achievements. But technical skill. So it's possible for something to suck on a technical level. Just be terrible. And it could be acting, could be directing, could be any number of things. I discovered to my horror a number of years ago that filmmaking is the kind of world where the best script of the year could be the worst movie of the year. And the best directed film of the year could be the worst movie of the year. The best scored movie of the year could be the worst movie of the year. Like, it just, all of these different components could, could achieve great excellence and the whole thing could fall down. A director could do an amazing job on set and then lose the power struggle with the studio as they hire their own editor and the editor puts it all together and has a mess on their hands or assigns a different score or does any number of other things. So it's a whole piece. And all of that belongs under the big swath of technical criticism. You're talking about camera work. You're talking about actors' performances. You're t uh, lighting, scoring, all those things. That's, that's where, you know, sophisticants, frequent young hipsters like to live. You know, they, they like to watch these things and engage there. Like, but it's amazingly crafted. You don't understand how well lit that centerfold was. <laughs> lighting. I mean, like, I've never seen a subject lit like that before. It's like... Okay. I mean, yeah. I'm sure Playboy doesn't hire bad grips. I'm sure, I'm sure they know how to I'm sure they know how to light really well. Because you gotta see everything. So the lighting could be magnificent, but what is being lit? The editing could be fabulous, but what's being cut and what's it communicating? So on the technical level, I could talk about script criticism, script craft actors' performances, any number of things. And then you move down to kind of like the more, it's a little bit POMO, but the more pastoral level, which is what I just think of as response, response value. So there's the influence this piece has on the, on the crowd, on the masses. What does this show do? What does it perpetuate? How does it affect people's dreams and aspirations and goals? How is it catechizing? How is it discipling? Because it's trying to. So character loyalty is the first and most important piece of any filmmaking or TV show. You must create character loyalty, character attachment. You must grab the audience and must bond them to this person. Antiheroes are really it right now. 
the, there's, there's wonderful things that happen in Hollywood where the, the network USA has what they refer to internally as a blue sky mandate. It means all outdoor scenes will be shot with a blue sky. It's the blue sky mandate. That's what makes USA USA. So think about it. White collar. Bounce back to psych. You know, all these different USA shows. All of them, burn notice. All of them are shot blue sky. They're, they're blue sky mandate. You have to get special permission from a channel studio production head to shoot with an overcast sky. Otherwise, every sky is either blue or replaced in CG to be blue. Because it's supposed to be this wonderful kind of like cool Ocean's Eleven hip vibe as these criminals pull off their heists and everything else. It's supposed to be sunny and happy and wonderful. It's like it's, it's supposed to put this sheen on it. And so there's a few overcast shots and some of them, they have to get written permission, they have to do it, and so on. FX, anti-heroes only. That's just a rule, internally. They're not interested, unless it's an anti-hero. Unless it's somebody who's actually dirty and conflicted and, and you know, goes both directions on the good and evil side. And they, they just make these choices. They talk about quotas of homosexuals in shows, how many there will be, what type, how they will be represented. Is it like incrementally moving from fashionista to wise sage? It's like, and they'll do it just like they do product placement. They know how many times the Apple logo has to appear, and they know how many times the Apple logo has to appear in a show before everybody thinks it's the it brand for that generation. Like, they have all of that. They have all that data, and they do the same thing with social issues. It, the big frustration in the creative room down there is how do they do for abortion what they did with gay marriage. They know the role they played successfully in getting the next generation just to say, yeah, what's the big deal about same-sex marriage? And they don't understand why they've struggled with that with abortion. And they're trying. We've been in meetings where guys are telling us about the, the movie they're doing. They're really, we're trying to present this abortion like we're really, like, it's so difficult. Like, we're trying to get the world to understand not just that it's a necessary evil, but sometimes, but it's a positive good. Like, this is, we got to get it to positive good status. They know what they're doing. At least they know their goals. And some of them know what they're doing, technically. But there's response. So technical value is that you're engaging as a professional. You're taking it apart like a critic. You're engaging with craftsmanship and so on at every level, from performances to script to editing to score. Response is you're looking at people. You're looking at people, and you're looking at people watching this. Like, what is this teaching the people, and how are the people absorbing it? It's like, how is it affecting them? And that's going to change group to group. So think about, like, as one example, hard-bitten inner-city rap in the 90s. What was it doing to a generation coming up under it? What were the dreams being established, being catechized? What was the victory, the nature of the victory, being catechized in? There's all sorts of reasons why it was big. There's reasons why it was actually frequently a positive move. But there's also all sorts of obvious examples. Now think, what, do, what are the white suburban kids being catechized by? It's like That's a stark example of just gangsters bragging about how many people they've killed and how many bitches they've slapped and and so on. 
But what are the like what are the little like middle America suburban weaklings all being catechized by? And in that situation, most of them are vicariously watching shows like Breaking Bad and other things like that. Mad Men was huge, slightly older demographic. But man, liquor sales through the roof. Like brands were reborn. A friend of ours is personally responsible for having made the Lego brand, taking Lego from almost bankrupt, is bordering on bankruptcy, to now one of the number one brands on the planet because he licensed the characters and started making Lego video games. And then after doing that, he made the Lego movie. And now every, every kid wants Legos. It's not complicated. So as you, as you, and that's great. That's an example of it working. So response-wise, response criticism, you look at Lego, and you look at how people are responding to Lego. That's something you have to take into account. Now, that's not necessarily something a critic has to always take into account in every situation, but if you want to be a leader of people, if you want to be a discipler of people, you have to watch what happens to them. You have to see how they engage, and you have to do everything in your power to keep them from being baby birds sitting there with their mouths wide agape, just ingesting whatever happens to be shoved inside by mama media. <laughs> that's the most important thing how to get them to assess and process and consider and weigh and engage and name. How to get those image bearers of God to name what's being handed to them. And to start with something as simple as good, bad, or yes, no, or this might be fine, but not for me. I don't think this is healthy but I can see how it's okay for some people. Like, the, you, there has to be discernment. But right now, what we have is just personal preference. I like horror movies. I don't like horror movies. I like apple pie. I like pumpkin pie. But what do horror movies do? Are there good horror movies? Are there some horror movies that are valuable? Are there horror movies that our culture needs right now? Then I would say, yes. Those aren't the ones we're making. But do we need a horror movie? Well, read the prophets. Read the prophets and see what they're laying down for the people. And they're laying down a horrible, awful future. And you see the kind of the, I think with American guilt, we have a huge amount of national guilt. And I think you see, like you can see and understand why so many times we're telling ourselves these, these little, uh, I'd say the cinema of purgation. You know, where it's like, we like to be purified by a narrative. Like, well, yeah, we felt the guilt. And boy, whew, those zombies really all tore our faces off. We really got what we deserved. Now we feel better and we can leave. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, there's a reason why we like Americans love to watch shows and films of total annihilation of Americans. We know what's coming. We know what we deserve. And it keeps coming now as far as it goes some of it's valuable and some of it is just makes us feel better for a moment makes us like we vicariously participated in some kind of judgment and now we can back away from it some of it's just catholic guilt you know you see lots of catholic horror cinema some of it good some of it bad but what's it for to what end you can talk about how it's crafted but i think if you're if you're discipling people 
moving on past that very quickly and talking about what it's doing, what it's doing to people. What is its message? What is its catechism? What is it reinforcing in you? Which loyalties is it giving to you? Which loyalties is it undermining in you? And that's the power of storytelling. We are namers. We are the image bearers of God. And even the God-haters, or especially the God-haters, are always trying to rename, like twist and change and shift what it means to, be, have, to have resolution, what it means to be redeemed. And it can be really like cheap level. Like how many movies have people made about the assassin who just has to do just one more job? But then he, he draws a line at not murdering children. And it's like, oh, good. Doesn't murder children. And then now, because he's told to marry, murder a child, he's going to tear down the whole effing place. <laughs> you know, it's like, we, we love to tell ourselves stories like, yeah, we're bad, but we're not that bad. We're not so bad that we can't be the hero. And we do that over and over and over again with cheap cinema and high cinema. Yeah, we're bad. Concede the guilt, twisted character, anti-hero, brokenness. That's a great Christian story, right? Except for when you get to the, but not that bad part. So that's response. So you have technical value. Most of us aren't hanging out there. It's good to know. It's good to understand. It's good to look behind the curtain at the little wizard and how the sausage is made so that you can tell the people you're discipling, oh, Book of Eli? No, that was a movie about Islam, and they chickened out. And they swapped in a Bible instead of a Quran because they knew there was going to be a fatwa, and they're going to all die. Like, well, that's how that went. So now Christians get excited about a movie where a guy talks about the book that destroyed the planet and must be kept out of the hands of anybody seeking power and needs to be locked up in Alcatraz and it's the Bible and Christians are like, Christian message! Excuse me? The guy who's trying to keep people from reading the Bible? The guy who's running and hiding the Bible? The guy who's locking the Bible up in prison because it destroyed the planet. And people, and people are excited. And Hollywood marketing machines pre, pre-edit snippets for sermons. They, they hire people to pre-write sermon outlines. Superman. All of everything, everything since the Passion. Like that's, that's when that was invented, really. And then and we know the people who helped invent it. They're very proud of themselves. Superman sermons, Batman sermons, all of these things get little prefabbed things for Christian disciplers to hand to their people. And what you need to be is the first line of immune system. Your people that you're discipling need to trust you more than they trust a faceless director. They need to have more loyalty to their local communities, to their local churches, and to their families than they have to an imaginary protagonist who deals meth. Is that so hard? Actually, yes. Like instilling loyalty to local communities, instilling local, like local church loyalty in young people over against the hardworking geniuses at FX who are just like striving to feed them antiheroes is in fact difficult. It's hard work. And most Christian leaders tap out. Don't engage. We don't talk about that. Or they tap in, 
foolishly. And they're that youth pastor who loves to turn the, the chair around backwards and sit down and be like, hey guys, do you like Breaking Bad? I love Breaking Bad. Let's get some pizza. Do you like pizza? I love pizza. <laughs> and that's our level of engagement. Man, I need them to like me. I just bad need them to like me. I don't need to go smack the wolf in the face. It's like, I need to be over here with the kids being like, dude, man, that's, that's pretty gnarly, right? Look at those teeth. It's amazing. Like, we have to do better than that. Look at honest responses of people. How do people actually respond? And get out of the normal Christian rationalizations for why it's okay for us to watch it. Because that's easy to do. It's not strictly forbidden. Of course it isn't. We're allowed to eat it. We're also allowed to eat a bucket of trans fat. It came down in the sheet with Peter's vision. There it is. We can do that. It's like, we're technically allowed to. But is that, in fact, good stewardship? Is that, in fact, a good imitation of Christ? Is that, in fact, good image bearing? Like, that's where all of this gets tricky. Now, the last one of my three tiers of criticism when I'm engaging with people, especially young people, I'll talk to them about the technical level. I'll engage there. I'll encourage them to know more and understand more and understand more about the craft. We'll talk about what they're doing to people, starting with what does it do to the people who made it? Like, what effect does it have on the human beings, the community, the actual image bearers who are involved in, in creating this thing? Like, what did it do to those humans? And what does it do to us, those of us who are watching this, and engulf, in, in, in open, baby bird, all nine seasons in like one long two-week binge? What does it do to us? And the last one, the last tier is what I call objective. And I do that just on purpose, because that's what makes, it makes people nervous. The objective value of this creative work of Hunger Games the novel, the objective value, or the objective value of the film, or the objective value. That's where everybody's like, but you can't really say. You don't really know. It's like, sure. But it is knowable. It is a knowable thing, and God knows. Doesn't mean I'm right. Doesn't mean I successfully get to it, but I'm going to try. I'm going to attempt to name and it's not nearly as hard as naming the animals. Now, the objective value comes down to one very simple question. It's the most Sunday school question you can get. Does God like it? It's that easy. Does God like it? It's like, whew. Boy, that just is a buzzkill. For, for, little, for little aspiring filmmakers, it's the worst. But there's two pieces to this. One is, if you want to know if God likes it, you must know God. And you must be getting to know God. You need to be studying more about God and drawing closer to God even ever than you're growing to like technical values, cinematic techniques, the history of cinema, filmmaking, the early films of Kurosawa, like everything up there that all these little aspirers chase. They need to be chasing God's personality and God's taste with far more intensity. 
And they need to realize that he's not the schoolmarm that everybody thinks he is. He tells brutal stories. More brutal than anything that we have, I would just say, the balls to tell in the church. When we tell stories, we're like, well, we need God to like it. So let's smear Vaseline all over the lens. (laughs) Do lots of backlighting like the Hobbit and just make it kind of weirdly glowy. What makes us think, I think that's just outright blasphemy to think that God needs this little tiptoeing Amish romance. Now, incidentally, I think there's probably a really brutal story to be told about Amish romance. But it involves lots of polyester and B.O. Not, not what we do. Like, we skipped the real. The problem with Thomas Kincaid's paintings is he leaves out all the dead and bloated worms and all the glowing puddles. In God's world, it rains and worms come out and commit suicide en masse on every sidewalk. There they are. And when Christians paint that scene, they forget the worms. In Christian art, no one poops. In Christian art, nobody sweats. In Christian art, there's no pain. There's no agony. Or, if there is, it's backlit, and somebody falls on their knees. Oh, like, and the music changes, and everything. it's just bad. Conversion stories, when God tells them, well, we've got a murderer who gets knocked off a donkey and blinded. We've got, a, we've got a thief on a cross being crucified, and it's the best day of his life. It's like, that's, that's how God does it. And the way we do it is, well, just, let's just say we like a lot more cheese than he, actually, not real cheese, just cheese in a can. <laughs> Some friends of ours made a movie. They were hoping it was going to be a real it thing in the festivals, and um, it wasn't. So, after discussions with distributors, they put a voiceover prayer of conversion at the end so they could at least get the faith market. And they did get the faith market. So, this dark, bleak, horrible movie ended with a suicide. Well, they threw the B.O. in there at the end. There's the, there's the little sinner, sinner's prayer. Now, at least, Lifeway will sell 50,000 units. 75,000 units, 150,000 units. It's like, it's very, I mean, it's, it's a really bleak landscape as far as like what motivates Christians. So under does God like it, you need to be getting to know God. You need to read Job a bunch. You need to read the Psalms. You need to read the Old Testament and realize someone was telling stories and was doing it with real people. I mean, he plays rough and beautifully. I mean, the narratives are crafted like, in, in such a painful way. And you look at all that, and you realize that all of it's leading up to the moment when his son enters the story. And I'll talk about this in my next chat with the whole group. When his son enters the story to claim a defiled, rotting bride under a death curse and had done nothing wrong. When he goes to the cross and is crucified and it's bloody, and it's awful, and it's nasty, and there's nudity. When he tells a prophet, I need you to go naked for three years, or I need you to marry a whore, 
or I need you to cook with human dung. And the prophet's like, I can't, please, no, okay, fine, animal dung. In fact, there was a barter about what kind of dung he had to cook with. When he puts a prophet in a cave and sends a, a carrion bird, an unclean bird with food to feed him. It's like, that stuff, it's like, that's some of the best Christian storytelling there, there is. Story of Jonah. It's like all of these amazing stories. Bloody, painful, dark, broken, leading to redemption. Pointing to the cross, pointing to the future, pointing to hope and salvation. I've got no problem with a bleak, broken narrative. I have a problem with where it points and what it says and the effect it has on people. And at the end, I can also say this, I'll, then I'll open it for questions. Um, technical criticism has its place. But when you get to know God's personality, you can also get to, get to realize very quickly that sometimes that's the last thing he cares about. So which is more beautiful? A boy's choir, dressed up in foofy lace like bait, half of whom have been abused at some point, either in their boarding school or by their priests, singing beautifully, executing an amazing piece with sophistication. Or an old pastor in a square white church that's kind of falling down, banging out a hymn on an out-of-tune piano. It's like, well, where's his heart? Where's the heart of his people? Which one is the widow's might? Like, people with low budgets doing their best. Like, I'm going to be a lot more forgiving of a movie like Fireproof than I am going to be of a $100 million studio picture. Now, once Fireproof's made a bunch of money and they say, ooh, we can do that again, and they try to duplicate it, then I have a much bigger problem. It's like, but when people have a little and they do their best and they offer it up to God, like, with as much faithfulness as they can muster, we get down to the bottom and say, what, does God like it? Is he receiving it? And if he does, I have no right to dismiss it. I, I, who am I? It's like, I want a name, but I want a name in, in imitation of him. I want to do my best to find his preferences. And I'm going to fall short in that all the time. But I have to study his creation, his stories, his narratives, his dramas that play out with ants and sidewalk cracks, the way he makes dragonflies, the way he feeds the hawks, the way he does these things to get to know his taste and his style and what pleases him. Read in the Bible what pleases him and then take it over here to your aesthetic criticism. There's a lot more I could say, but I'll open it up for, for questions and hopefully we'll cover some of it. Yes, sir. Okay. It's all about what happens to it. So, great Christian art will honor the honorable and damn the damnable. It's that, and I think it's that simple. It's that simple to say. It's much harder to actually incorporate in your creative work, but it's easier to identify than to make. So when you're attempting to create and fashion a story that does these things, that's really, it's quite hard. But when you are sitting there watching it, saying, what, what is being damned? What is being honored? And how, what is the path to honor? 
So what is the path to redemption? Is it, is it purgation? Is it some sort of bloody apocalypse that you barely survive? No, so I look at Hunger Games as one example, and I, man, I've, I've said rude things about the Shroud of Turin before and got a whole bunch of death threats and like amazing hate mail. But <laughs> next in line, the runner-up was when I said mean things about Hunger Games. I mean, whew. Like the, the backlash was beyond anything I had expected. Because what I said was that it, it was a bait-and-switch story. It starts with this Christian sacrifice of a sister offering herself in her sister's place, and she's saying, take me instead. And then they throw her in the games where she murders other children. Because that's the rules. It's like, excuse me? So, no, but you don't understand. They, they would have killed her. It's like, so it's, it just starts with this Christian sacrifice, and it becomes the bloodiest, nihilistic, Darwinian story you could ever have. Where she's, she's killing people in their sleep, She's being grateful when her friend is disemboweled so she doesn't have to do it herself. Because she would have. And it becomes kill or be killed. And she's killing other innocent people who are also grabbed and thrown into this thing by the machine. And it's, it's astonishingly horrible. And it opens so well. She, she knows exactly how to write a page turner. I mean, she can boil a pot like anybody. So if we're talking about genre... And technical ability, it's like, oh, no, she aimed for something, and boy, did she hit it. Like, she had a target, and she, the craft is such that people just got eaten alive by this thing. It just consumed them, gripped them. They were there. They were sympathetic with Katniss Everdeen. Please kill them, Katniss, kill them. And then she did. And it's just like, it just departed completely, and Christians were thrilled with it because of that initial head fake. And I think the, the initial head fake was great. I also think it would have been not difficult to structure the rest and, and step away from the nihilism. I think it has like kisses of it and the, the aroma of it in places. But uh, as, as we navigate it, you need to look at what's damned, what's honored, what is redemption. And one of my pet peeves with, among my Christian novelist friends is that they love to write. This is the people who are away from the Vaseline. You have the Vaseline people, whom I know, a number of them, and then you have the, like, the gritty Romans 1 people. So why, why, why can you tell this story, Romans 1? Oh, okay, Romans 1. Great. So you want to say Romans 1. It's like just Romans 1. I get to do it, Romans 1. Romans 1 covers everything. Because people are broken. People are dark. So I get to just, I'm just going to say that over and over and over again. And boy, are they literal and realistic with their presentation of how broken people are. Really, really broken. So much so that they're breaking people who are even on the set. People who are on set are breaking. People who are on set need therapy. Child protection services get called to the set because a dude, an actor, starts masturbating in the corner in front of the children. This is a Christian production recently that some friends of ours were making. And CPS has to show up. It's like, well, he's a little too method. It messes people up. So what's damned, what's elevated what's honored, and so on. But my Christian gritty friends love to write literal darkness, but then their grace is always figurative. The grace is typological. The grace is metaphorical. And it's like, well, see all this stuff. There's all the incest and the rape, because Romans 1. And then at the end, you see how there's that one beam of light? 
that's kind of visible 500 yards away. That's a picture of the gospel. Roll credits. So they do, they do the literal darkness, and then they do metaphorical grace because they're, I'll say, I was about to say a bad word, but they'll just say cowards. So here, dark, 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 real, 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 because that's accepted by the gatekeepers of the secular establishment, and I have to kind of sneak in a little kiss of maybe I'm a Christian. You won't be surprised later when you find out that I'm a Christian because I kind of put the secret code in at the end as opposed to having your grace be as literal and real and belonging to the same universe as your evil. So your evil and your, and your light, your dark, they have, to, they have to belong on the same ontological plane. And so whether you're doing a, if you're doing a story of realism, it's like, well, you can't be scared of conversion scenes because they, they do happen in the real world. I don't know if you're familiar with that. They, they actually happen, but they're totally limited to the Vaseline stories. They only show up in the Vaseline stories. And never the way they really happen in, in the real world. Any other, any other questions? With, with what? Yeah. Because we're insecure, we've believed lies about the history of Christian art, and I, I really think that we're just starved and we're desperate. So it's like, it's, it's so thrilling for Christians to be like, oh, something for us, something we can read. It's something that's, you know, something I don't have to feel bad about reading because I can point to. I mean, I've heard people defend zombie apocalypses, like bloody, like, just bloody awful little zombie pieces because it's a, it's a picture of the resurrection. And I, then I just sort of like, have, I, I go into my Tourette's mode. Um, it's like, it's nothing like the resurrection. It's like... Yeah, it's just... It's amazing. And they do it seriously. And they're intelligent people. Because they just... Can I just watch something? I, I, I can't tell you how many times somebody has told me, can you just, just, just let me watch it? Like, I just, I just want to have something I can, just, I can just watch. I don't want to have to think about it. You know, it's like, that's just, that's it. It's like, well, as long as we're in agreement that it's straight lard, or that it's poisonous, or that it's moonshine, or you're doing it in bulk, you know, it's like, then sure, go for it. You know, knock yourself out. I think we're just so hungry for it. But we've also lost all sense of history, the fact that our community runs way back, you know, it's like, especially for Americans, it's very easy to disconnect themselves from the greatest achievements of the West, which are all Christian art. You know, the, the greatest architectural achievements are Christian architectural achievements, the greatest music ever written. I mean, not all of it, but some of the most amazing musical pieces are all the fruit of the gospel. You know, like, and that's, that's ours. Those things are ours. And we lose them. We let, this, we let the world claim them. And we're sitting here waiting for the dedicated ghetto of Sony distributors to tell us which film is for our people next. Uh, the whole machine is incredibly patronizing that way. And so a massive secular world, a big, huge conglomerate, has, well, if you want to have a horror film, 
it must have these components and these rules, just like the blue sky rule or the anti-hero rule. It must have these things. We'll market it this way, this budget. If you want a movie for Christians, it must have these things this way, and we'll market it this way. We'll have this budget. And, and it's, the thing that's funny is it's a big pagan company that does all of it. One of my pet peeves is when I hear people bemoaning faith film and how embarrassing Christians are for their faith film. It's all made and distributed by pagans. It's like, come on, it's Sony. Sony that does most of it. Like the overwhelming majority of it. Sony. Now, yeah, Christians are participants and they need to have you know, a, a come-to-Jesus chat like when, they, when they're doing the real frothy garbage. Um, but it's like blaming the church for it. It's fun. The church isn't funding it. The church is being duped by it. It's a totally different thing, and they're being duped by it by a large international media company, which also pumps out slasher porn. You know, but Christians are insecure about their art. And I'll tell you this, even with all of our crap, and there's a lot of it, if you, fa- if you find me a video store, one that still exists, I know of one in my hometown. And I would just watch, or just Netflix. If you could just scroll by every movie and just see the budget and the marketing budget for every single film, bloop, 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 going by, millions and millions and millions and millions and millions, and you're like, wow, so much garbage. And then it's like, oh, there's a good movie. Bloop, 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 ding, bloop, bloop, bloop. How many billions of dollars does the world spend before they have like one good minute of cinema? And over here in the Christian world, we have a total amount of money spent in the last two years of about $40 million across all Christian film. And we're ashamed. It's like, but I'm willing to say that we get per minute, <laughs> per minute of decent cinema, I think we're ahead. A friend of mine made Saving Christmas, and he told me he was going to make, and he got trolled hard. It was a Christmas pageant. I mean, he basically just shot a, a church pageant. And they got trolled hard by a bunch of people that hadn't watched it. They, wanted, they were rallying each other on Reddit to make it the worst rated film on Rotten Tomatoes of all time. It's not a good movie. It's a fun little Christmas pageant. But it's a goofy little Christmas pageant. And he told me recently, he's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a sequel. <laughs> and, and he said, I want the tagline to be, as long as you're making Hot Tub Time Machine, I'm making Saving Christmas. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like, Nobody looks at their garbage and is like, oh man, their whole worldview is bereft. It's like, why, why do pagans make such bad movies? No, it's always, why do pagans make such great movies and Christians make such bad ones? And I can almost, I bet you as well, it's like whenever you find a really great movie, like if you take the great films that the studios have created over the last number of decades, when you get in there, you will find Christians. You will find Christians all through the infrastructure. They were in this committee meeting. They wrote that scene. There's all these things. Those little hints and moments that you identified, you recognized, they're real. It's like, but we give the world the credit for them. And we don't give the world the credit for all the hot tub time machine movies. And we just blame the Christians for all the nonsense. So I think we're insecure. I think we've been lied to. And I think we have no sense of our own history. Yeah. Yeah. Is it also getting to know who we are in Christ's presence? And so we don't feel so insecure, we know yeah. our identity better, our 
Yeah. I think, I think absolutely. If you get to know God better, you get to know your Father. You're getting to know your Father. Yeah, this is like, this is, this, is your, this is your lineage. This is your family. You're supposed to be like this. You're supposed to love what he loves and hate what he hates. And when you see what he loves, we're, we are more likely to be scared of what he loves than to be scared of what he hates. Like, when he, when he hates, we agree. We understand. Although we can slip into the hypocrisies that he denounces soundly and destroys very easily. It's when he loves. It's when he plays rough. It's when those stories go dark that we say, why God, why? And we're scared of his aesthetic judgments. You know, I understand it. We're very small, and it's very painful. So when he does that, one of the examples I'll give in my next talk is something I've used on unbelievers and on myself as well. Envision a really fat caterpillar. This is the kind of story God tells. Caterpillar. He tells us a lot, actually. Part of being infinite, again, the not getting bored thing. It's like another caterpillar story, another caterpillar story, another hungry, hungry caterpillar story. So here's this fat caterpillar just consuming, just like as it goes around. And it eats so much that eventually it has to hold still and turn into soup. Like it just liquefies. And you can envision a couple other caterpillars standing around there looking at poor Frank. And one of them saying, I could never believe in a God who had turned Frank into soup. I mean, it's like, our perspective is so tiny. <laughs> it's so minuscule. We, have, we can't see the next thing. Like, yeah, that's pretty terrifying. You're a caterpillar. You turn into liquid. And how on earth do you even begin to connect that with what happens next or how this liquid reconstitutes itself into a brightly colored flying object? I mean, it's It's ridiculous. But that fat little friend of Frank can sit there and struggle with the problem of evil, the, the problem of pain. Why does God have to liquefy the caterpillars? Why can't it be a more painless, you know, easy thing? It's like, well, because he's him. So I, I get asked a lot, uh, a common question from Christian parents is, why do you hurt your characters so much? Like, why do they go through so much? It's like, well, yeah, it's like, um, well, have you read the Bible? <laughs> How's your life? You know, it's like, how much pain do you see? I mean, it's, it's amazing how much we want it to be smurfful, smurf land, where if we were in charge, we would go full smurf, and, and it's just, it shows, it shows you how unlike our father we are, how unlike our father we become because we're terrified. So it's one of those things that the hip little, the, the hip young generation that you're in charge of discipling will think of itself as edgier and more hard-bitten than you. And you need to be like, let me tell you the story of Judah and Tamar. So this, this woman tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her by dressing as a whore, and uh, God blessed her. Good job, Tamar. It's like, do the whole thing. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Incidentally, I don't think Tamar sinned. You read that story, you don't see judgment. You see blessing. You see her claiming what was stolen from her by a corrupt tribal chieftain. And she takes what was hers. She defends what was hers and defends what was her dead husband's by calling him on his hypocrisy, by seducing him. Okay. Great. 
It's like, and then and the parents called, like, what are you telling my kids? It's like, we're reading the Bible. Today we're reading Ezekiel aloud, and we're going to read it in an actual translation, which makes sense, instead of just a massive euphemistic dodging as it insults the genitalia of Ethiopians and Egyptians and talks about Israel spreading their legs by the wayside for people whose issue, come, is like the come of donkeys. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's in our book. And we just skip it. How many times is the word unicorn in the Bible? Six. How many times is it translated unicorn in modern translations? Zero. Because that's embarrassing. We don't believe in unicorns. So just check it out. Why are there satyrs dancing in the ruins of various damned cities? Satyrs. There aren't satyrs. Goats in modern translations. Dragons. Oh, they're there. But they're not real, so we need to retranslate. It's like if we actually go to God's story, we, it's, it's, we're going to scare the ones underneath us. It's like when you really tell the story. And I, when I tell my kids the story of the flood, I kick against uh, my own picture Bible that I read growing up, in which it seems like everybody stayed up a little bit past their bedtime. And then God, the great overreactor in the sky, <laughs> just destroys it. <laughs> it's like, so that's back to the story of getting your light and your dark in the same ontological plane. We're scared of telling our kids how evil it was. And so we make God look bad because we get it out of whack. So we have to go to scripture and be unafraid of scripture and reading our father's book, like actually, and then also reading his other book, nature, creation, history. Like when we, when we read all that and get to know his personality and we do it more and more and more and more, we become more and more like him, these judgments are going to become simpler and simpler. If we're willing just to sit back and be generic Americans, this will be very complicated. It'll be very difficult. Yes, sir. I think it's incredibly realistic. <laughs> um, actually, I think there's a bell curve, like with everything. And 
my own upbringing was such that my dad's goal was to have me be, um, and, and what my goal is with my children now, is to remove the shine and the glamour and the appeal. It's not to try to keep them from ever coming into contact with, because that's futile. But it's to keep them from ever seeing it as shiny and seductive. And so my father, I remember quite vividly when he was like, hey, like, I, I, wanna, I want you to see some things. And I was maybe 10. And he sat down on the couch with me and he turned on MTV. And we sat there and we watched music videos. And one of the first things, one of the first ones I ever saw was Big Time by Peter Gabriel. And he, we watched it and he, he turned it off. I was like, okay, so what do you think he's saying? What do those pictures mean? What is he trying to say about the world? And we had this conversation. From that moment on, two through 12 and 13, we would watch things. And he was very careful about what he selected for us to watch. You know, we weren't watching just raunch or something like that. It was always like, but he wanted me to learn how to, to see and pick apart and identify what are they doing, how are they doing it, what are they trying to do to me, what are they trying to say to me, what do they want me to believe. What do they want me to believe without even knowing I've started to believe it? And so that was, that was his design. And he told me when I was 12, he said, when you're 16, you can watch any movie you want. You can watch it in my house. He said, because if you can't determine what you should and should not watch by then, it's too late. And it was, for me, I was like, whoa. <laughs> like, like, he's ready to shake the dust off his sandals at 16. Um, <laughs> And it's like, and I know, I know that it was, you know, I had four years warning, and we watched a lot of things together. We watched a lot of films together, and we talked through them and engaged with them. And we talked about which ones were worth it, which ones weren't worth it, which ones are worth it to watch and engage with, like Terry Gilliam's Brazil is one example. And even though it, like, has this, this nihilistic end, brilliant film, one of my favorites, but you can see what it's doing and how it's pitching it. Versus which one's just, eh, like there's, it's not worth sitting through that particular poop bath for two hours in order to engage. You know, it's like just when to engage, when not to, uh, and so on. So I think that it is unreasonable, it is an unrealistic expectation to think that every family can do that. But I think it is a reasonable expectation for the leaders in the church to be able to try to help the kids in their church the families in their church become, what I would say, unseduced, like no longer seduced by the shine, and to begin the process of going this direction, the process of trying to name. Now, they'll, for, it, it could be some people won't get past ever just processing the next Marvel movie. You know, it could, and I think that's diff, it's the bell curve. And other people are going to be trying to engage at a higher level, and that's fine. Other people will be you know, listening to the, you know, to Bach. You know, and these people will be listening to Mumford and Sons. And that will be the, you know, the highest the art form gets. You know, God makes all sorts of all levels, and he meets them where they are. And if you are, it's, it's back to the widow's might thing. If you're engaging and you're naming and you're bearing the image at your level to the best of your ability, I think God receives that. God is pleased by it. I know, bless it. Yeah. And he uses it, and he, he will bless it. So the key is, I think, a mentality and a, and a, and a going forth. So not just a retreat, but, a, but a how to engage, when to not engage, and how to name.
pick apart, and so on. And, and to be thinking as you're watching stuff, what does God think? Does this, does this, is this accurate in its reflection of his world and the way he tells stories? Is this similar to the way he tells stories, or is it dissimilar? Does it honor what he honors? Does it damn what he damns? And, and so on. But yeah, it's a, it's a massive journey, and our culture is so far away. But it starts with, you know, it's like every journey, it starts with one foot in front of the next, and then the next. So I, my, my part of this journey is with everybody I can reach. You know, my 48 freshmen that I'm working with, or my six grad students, or my five children. You know, so it just, as far as your arm extends, I think this is the task ahead of us. I'm out of time, but I'll answer one more. Yeah. No, that's that's a terrific question, and it's just I think it's just as massive a journey. Um, so it's like okay, so this is the one direction, the the defensive resistance, and then how do you, given that everybody's hungry, how do you feed? How do you go? I mean, it's such a different task. Um, I would say you have to start with with the book. You have to start with the Bible, and you have to start with a joyful unafraid reading of it. You know, you have, to, you have to try to get, we have so many calluses, there's so many calluses on Christians about Bible stories. It's like the nerve endings are dead. It's really hard to feel the book of Esther. You know, it's like now. And so retellings, like verbal tellings, reading the book, going to the book, and then retelling it and describing it in ways that you're stripping off the calluses when people are feeling it for the first time. Like, and then carrying that over into the world. God's telling these stories. What does he honor here in this reality? Uh, part of my last talk about opening your eyes to what's around you. Dragonflies and butterflies and little earwig wars with ants. and you know, it's, there's, there's just all this stuff going on all the time. I think the goal is to feed on the stories of God, which are everywhere. There's this huge library around us all the time that we ignore. And we sit down and turn on the screen. Well, the world has one two-dimensional screen, and God has this 360 psychotic, fully sensual reality around us all the time. The goal is to feed them with that. The goal is to make them more blown away by creation and, and nature than by a TV show. The goal is for them to see the Rocky Mountains and the clouds and to watch planet Earth like, and watch time lapses of weather systems and, and some of the craziness that God's doing and see it blowing away the crap CGI of Marvel. So it's, it's all right here. Even if Christian filmmakers aren't making films to wow them, look outside. You know, it's like, look outside, look at the history of Christian art and, and so on. And read scripture. So I tell kids, you know, where's the... His, you know, like high school kids, I'll be, what's the first wizard duel in literature? And they all go, oh, 
Like, oh, it's Moses going into Pharaoh's court. Like, why do you think Gandalf exists? It's like, because that old man walked in out of the desert, leaning on a staff. Now, as a side note, if he was in Harry Potter, he would have a little Death Eater tattoo. Because he called down the angel of death, the good guy, and killed every firstborn in the kingdom. The good guy turned the river to blood. The good guy turned his staff into a snake. Like, the good guy. And we, it tells you how our categories are screwy still. Our stories are awesome because our stories are God's stories, and we need to do a better job of retelling them orally and then also like going out there telling these stories, you know, like unpacking the, the stories of nature. It's, if, if somebody really starts to have their mind blown by God's creation, it's much more difficult for them to have their mind blown by a bad TV show. I'll end there. Mm. Yeah, the absent fathers. And it's, it makes the connection to the father's creation that much more important. So, basically, every one of my protagonists, every one of them has, a, has father issues. And that's conscious. Because that's the most universal wound right now in our culture. That's sort of the gaping wound. And I'm not just talking about missing fathers. You know, it's like missing in every way. I'm talking about guys who aren't there, either totally absent or are there and aren't there. They're present, but they're a horrible picture of God the Father. Or they're just slack, selfish, whatever. So trying to connect to fatherhood, capital F, you know, I think is really, really important. And connecting to the Father, you know, filling that, filling that hole, the hole in the soul of our current generation. Thank you very much.